Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, everybody, for uh, coming and, and joining in our worship this morning. And for those online, thank you for joining us. We are blessed when we get together and we worship our Lord. I'd also like to thank the music ministry and the readers did a great job. And uh, Alex, wherever you went, Alex, great job up there. Fantastic. The sound booth, the dancers, all these people, if you can join me, all these people. All these people and your support also uh, is what makes our service possible. So, I am also not Rabbi David, and you know why. Um, but I enjoy this. Maybe we can find something interesting in Torah. I, I really do like getting into it, and I like to look at things a little bit differently. But let's start with a traditional prayer. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech haolam, asher kachana b'mitzvotav, etzivana la'atzok, b'didrei Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commandments and has commanded us to immerse ourselves in Torah. Well, I think we have one more portion in November's and then we're off to Deuteronomy. So the second to the last. And this portion, I think, was full of great lessons. Messages, very applicable for today. I think I say that almost every time I get up here, but that's what I find in the Bible. It's really a great book of wisdom as well as the rules, laws, and the teachings. Now, it's always nice to know, I usually have a couple trains of thought, and it's always nice to know that there's a caboose at the end of a train of thought, and so I'm going to give them to you up front, which is what I like to do. So where are we going today? Well, on the portions this week, we cover six very well-known days of observance. We're directed to keep them, and if you do all of them, then it keeps our year, I wouldn't say busy, but it keeps us engaged. Why were we given these days of observance? Pinchas presents a very aggressive defense of God's moral direction. So how does that fit with not returning violence for violence and later with the message Yeshua would tell us to turn the other cheek? Is there a conflict there? Oddly, and I said we have another book to go to yet, we cover Moses' death. Why here? Seems a bit out of place, doesn't it? He's still got a ways to go. And then I think maybe everybody's favorite, the daughters of Zelophehad. They petition Moses for an inheritance. All the ladies love that one, right, ladies? Yeah, they love that one. Okay. Now, all the smart men in here nod their head in agreement with the ladies. But I'd like to quote Forrest Gump from the movie Forrest Gump. And I'll see if I get this imitation right, but uh, I'm not a smart man. So anyway, I'm going to address it. Was it really about gender rights? <laughs> that one could get me in trouble, I suppose, but we'll go with it. Okay, so what are all these points leading to? They may seem like they're disconnected, but there is a point I'm getting to, and that is the idea of legacy. And each of you have one. 
and we have received one. The readings this week were Numbers 25, 10 through 31, or unless you do not have a Hebrew Bible, that'll go out to 2940. Jeremiah 1, 1 through 2, 3. Matthew 26, 1 through 30. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. But I'm going to start by saying something that's in Exodus 3.14. Not part of our reading. But it does deal with where I'm going to next. What should I call you? Moses asked God. When the people ask him, what is God's name? And he says, I am that I am. Actually, I think that's beautiful. But there are other translations. I will be what I will be. I am who I am. And one I kind of like, I will become what I choose to become. Those are all good translations. I am what I am. Shakespeare's Hamlet. For those of you who have a traditional education and you had to suffer through Shakespeare, says in, uh, in Hamlet, I act, therefore I am. And me. I always used to tell people quite often in my work, daily act like the person you want to be. Have a vision of what you want to be. Act like that person daily. And one day, you'll turn around and realize you've become that person. So, what does that mean? If you're feeling depressed, and I'm not sure who, I mean, I can't uh, give a footnote to this because I don't know where it comes from, but it's written, if you're feeling depressed, dance. I don't know about that one because if you saw me dance, it might make you more depressed. But if you're feeling depressed, dance. If you're feeling lazy, work. Angry, smile. Hostile, act friendly. Now, those last two, I can tell you that I've done. Um, specifically, I was driving down a street, and I was on a street where it T-bones, you know, into a, a th- another street, and you have to go right or left. And my street had a stop sign. And the other street was a through street. So admittedly, I came up to that stop sign a little quick. And there was a a lady driving from my left to right. And she thought I got to the stop sign a little quick. I could tell, I can't read lips, but I could tell that she was pretty angry because she was looking at her, her lips were moving. Now, I don't think she was deaf, but she did at least have mastered at least one symbol of sign language. And she was giving me that. And I went and smiled at her, because I have such a nice smile, as everyone knows. And I went, (laughs) that completely stopped. She stopped, the mouth stopped moving, her hand went away. But the important part of that isn't what happened to her. The important part of that was, I thought it was funny. So instead of having road rage and going away angry and being angry for the next three hours, which was not unusual for me back then, I actually went away kind of happy. It was like fun. So what you do, in fact, there's a saying to it, after one's actions, one's feelings follow. And that's true. And now we get to my first point. That maxim, after one's actions, one's feelings follow, I think we find is in part, if not a mainstay, of the Jewish and Messianic Jewish life 
attuned to the observances God has directed that we accomplish as we move through the year. Now, specifically, he gives us a few. Starting in Numbers 28, Shabbat. Then God rested. A sign between us. God commanded to observe it. Now Yeshua and the disciples honored it. Yeshua is Lord of the Sabbath, and we know that. Passover. Then blood on the doorpost. Death passes over. Deliverance. Now, that is a great ring. (laughs) Okay, Passover. Then, blood on the doorposts. Death passes is over. Deliverance. Now, it's connected to the Last Supper. Yeshua's blood on the doorposts of our hearts. Death passes us over. Deliverance. Feast of Weeks, then the word, the law given to us, Torah, and it started a count of 50 days to gather for the Jews. Now Yeshua rose from the dead. 50 days later, the Torah was written on our hearts. We know this because in the upper room, the Holy Spirit had visited people. And we also know from then that it was for everyone and not just the Jews. Feast of Trumpets, then the blowing of trumpets, God's blessing, marks a new year, something to think about. Now, blowing the trumpets, God blessings. Yeshua's return will be heralded by those trumpets in the marking of a new age. Day of Atonement. Then the priest entered the Holy of Holies. Scapegoat was sent out. Take away the sins of the people. Now, Yeshua is our high priest. The veil, has, the veil of separation is gone. He takes away the sins of the world. Feast of Booths. Then Israelites moved and lived in booths in the wilderness, focus on God and rejoice. Now, I hope we can do this, and I hope you do. We leave our, some of our modern amenities behind, maybe stay in a tent for a little while, and focus on God and rejoice. Those are the ones that were covered in the reading this week. And all these things have a common focus, and that is on God. To rejoice in his gifts, his forgiveness, salvation, a chance to repent, understand the sacrifice that was made for us, but it's all positive. It's a way of living life, and it's a way, if we do these things all year long, that we are changed. Which brings us back to one of the interpretations, I will be what I choose to be, and we choose to follow God through this way. Now, remember just a moment ago, like I said, I act, therefore I am. The more we spend time with God, and that's what these holidays help us do, or days of observance do, the more we spend time in his word, that's what we do on Shabbat, we engross ourselves or immerse ourselves, the more we consider his love and forgiveness. The more we consider the gift of salvation through Yeshua's sacrifice, the more his light will shine through us to all around us, and the more at peace we will be, more forgiving, more loving, and we will better reflect God. So, let me see, where am I? So, 
Let me get back just a little bit. There's two things that stick out. A violent man, it is connected to what I just said, but a violent man. You know what? I'm sorry. I got myself out of order. If you don't put your notes in the right order, yeah, you'll have an interesting process here. So let me back that up a little bit, okay? The better we reflect God's presence in our lives. While all these holidays have meaning and a history attached that I just talked about, God knows us, and he, know, and he knew us back then, and we were not all that different. The observances were not made, or at least I don't believe they were given to us because God needed them, but because he knew that we needed them. They are periodic reminders of how we should interact with the world around us. Who we are, a reminder of who we are. They help us create and support the legacy, which is where I'm going today. We are to pass on to sometimes, or maybe oftentimes now, an unbelieving world. And that is a segue now to Pinchas, the zeal of Pinchas. The story picks up, and you heard a little bit of it last week, where the Jews are dying from a plague as punishment for their sins of falling away from God and taking on foreign ways, worshiping other gods, in general, a widespread moral decline. They were partying hardy with the ladies. Pinchas is a man of God, and he is disgusted by this. He sees a particularly public display of debauchery, and he's had enough. While a single spear thrust, or with a single spear thrust, he kills both a high-positioned man of Israel and a high-positioned Midianite woman. Now, to thrust a spear through two people is not an easy thing to do. It was fueled by adrenaline anger, zeal. God makes an example of this man. He ensures that the remaining Israelites know that this act, this violent act, by this man stops the punishing plague that had already killed 24,000 people. Pinchas kills violently, and God publicly highlights his actions. Violence, aggression, being championed in public. Violence, aggression, being championed in public. I can tell you that is intoxicating. And the more violent you are, the easier it is. It's my experience that in a first act of violence, people hesitate most. But with each act of violence, they hesitate less. And eventually it becomes easy. And that is the legacy of a violent person. But God, what Pinchas did was good. God's legacy for, one, for us is not one of violence. So what does he do? He is pleased, like I said, with the, uh, with the violent action, but he makes a legacy with Pinchas. And he makes, with this violent man, it almost seems unusual, but he makes a covenant of peace with Pinchas and with his family, including his descendants. So this man who did the right thing, instead of be remembering or being remembered for something that would be the opposite of God's desire for us, is given a legacy, a legacy of peace. And I think that's interesting because right in that same verses, right in those same verses there, he directs Moses to harass the Midianites and to strike them down violently because they had harassed 
him and the people he leads. So what would that say about Moses' legacy? To me, that's an interesting point. A violent man from a violent act is given a legacy of peace. And Moses, who is generally a peaceful man, who has often stood in the way of God's wrath for people, is now told to be violent. I love those things, where they come up different. And those things stick out. It's interesting that as we read this, a legacy for Moses isn't mentioned. Not for him and not for his descendants, his family. So in that context, what does it mean to not give violence back in, uh, in kind to someone who has been violent to you? What does it mean later on in Matthew 5, verses 39, in the Sermon on the Mount, when it gives another view of retaliation? In NIV, in NIV, it reads, but I say to you, this is 539, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. I've seen that misquoted and misused so many times. And when you take it in the whole context of the Bible, what do I think that means? Keep in mind, I'm not a biblical scholar. Well, I believe he was addressing the violent response in the sense that you become a violent person. You become what we are supposed to hate. Violence is not a legacy of our faith. So we are told to turn the other cheek. But it's based on an idea. I mean, I, I read into this pretty, uh, pretty hard, I think. You know, I looked at it from a lot of different angles. It's based on the idea that you can shame someone who is normally of good conscience to change their behavior, their violent behavior, while not compromising your own integrity and kind. The assumption here is that both the slapper and the slappy, and I don't think that's a word, but I'm using it anyway, are functioning under the same moral imperatives. It's a slap, not a punch, or other aggressive assault, so it shows dominance, superiority. To offer the other cheek creates a dilemma for someone under the same moral code. The person has not accepted that inferior position. In fact, offering the other cheek puts you on the spot. So in my own interpretation, which has its limitations, as I said, this does not mean that you should stand by and idly or passively accept evil. Because in that sense, evil triumphs. If you are dealing with someone operating under a different moral code or no moral code, then the physical offering of the other cheek only invites abuse if you're talking about the physical offering. I don't see that in God's word or Yeshua's teaching, that we are supposed to invite continued physical abuse. Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong would not have been swayed by the offer of another cheek. It would work no better there than advising your child to allow the school bully to continue to abuse and terrorize him or her. That it would eventually correct the bully's behavior. I doubt it. But in what effort, whatever efforts you do take to stop the unjust abuse of another, 
needs to be morally correct. And that's what we're getting at here, I think. If a bully in position to abuse me does so, if the tables are ever turned, and I find myself in a position where I can abuse him, I must not. If Hitler, Stalin, and Mao Zedong are just killing people indiscriminately, which we know they did, when you win the war against them, it doesn't justify indiscriminately killing Germans, Soviets, or the Chinese. Even those people who actually physically murdered indiscriminately should be treated fairly because you are fair. The cheek, so to speak, to be slapped is not the face or what they're saying is don't turn the face of retaliation back towards someone, but the fresh face of honesty, fairness, and when required, forgiveness. I don't know if this is making sense exactly, but what I'm saying is the side of me that is slapped is the hurt side. The side of me that the lady yelled at and gave me some sign language for was the angry side. You turn the other cheek means you don't, not, do not present yourself in kind. The damaged part of you, let it go away. Move it away. Let the part of you that is not damaged shine, shine through. The side of, is undamaged is using the wisdom and the kindness of God's direction in guiding your reactions. And that is how we have a godly legacy in the making. So I hope I'm not misunderstood there. The point I want to get to is that we cannot in kind, in an unfair world, we, cannot, we are not justified in treating people fairly. And turning under the, cheek, the other cheek does not mean we should accept that. It just means when we can respond, we respond using God's moral laws. So now let's turn our attention to Moses for a second. A man of peace, an extreme leader, he's done great things, even impossible things for God. And he's done this with God's help and direction. He constantly fell on his face to protect Israel from the rightful wrath of God during their travels. He has unfailingly stayed at the helm of this stiff-necked people, leading them to a land promised as an inheritance for the people of Israel. He's allowed to see it, but not step foot in it. A census is taken, and it's a different kind of census. It's not just numbers. Now it's by tribe name. Even Aaron's surviving sons are counted. Now the census is done for three reasons. Like any shepherd that counts the remaining members of flock after illness or attack, and that's where they are. Who is left? You need a number. This land that's a promised inheritance is going to be divided by clan as an inheritance, as a legacy. So clan size and name is important. And the number of people who can protect this land from foreign aggression need to be counted. So basically, it is a draft. Or signing up for the draft, I should say. But Moses, after all this, we get to the point, and we get to this point, is not counted. His sons are not mentioned. So in the end, does he get nothing? In the end, no legacy? So what does Moses do? Now, I think he probably has a good reason to grouse a bit. You know, I don't like to take the humanity away from people of the past. 
He's like us. God is using him. He's talking to God. You know, what a wonderful relationship to work forward in. But he's still human. He's still like us. His sons probably thought, hey, I've gone all the way through this. Dad talks to God. I'm on the inside track. I'm going to get waterfront property. I'm going to get the best piece of land. And he's not mentioned. So what did Easy do? He asked God to identify a leader. He doesn't say anything about legacy or what he's going to receive or what his children should receive. Instead, he asked for a leader so that his sheep would not go without a shepherd. And Joshua is chosen, not one of Moses' sons. In fact, Joshua is not even a relation. But in front of all people, Moses lays his hands on Joshua and passes the mantle of leadership to him. And it is reaffirmed by a high priest to show that even the best leaders answer to God. This is what Moses was given in the very beginning. What he's remembered for will always be remembered for. And what he passes on, Moses has a very big legacy. Leadership of the Jewish nation. This nation from which our Savior will come. The Torah of truth given to us through Moses. This is Moses' legacy. Far from nothing, he will forever be connected with God, forever known as leader chosen by God, forever remembered as the inspired author of the Torah. His legacy so, proud, so oh, I should say, profoundly tied to all that we know of God that even the great Charlton Heston played him thousands of years later. Impressive. And this answers the question as to why Moses' death needed to be narrated in Numbers, even with Deuteronomy yet to come, because it talks to his legacy. And that legacy is important because my main point today is legacy and what that will mean to you. Legacy is the message that we leave behind. So Moses' legacy, it was appropriate to discuss his legacy, which is what comes after Moses. So I think that's why his death was placed here. We have discussed the days of observance, how it helps us to become the kind of person we need to become to produce the legacy we should produce and what God wants us to produce. Pinchas' zeal and covenant of peace, his legacy. Moses' death placed here early on in Numbers for his legacy. That's three of the questions I asked. And now we get to the last one, everybody's favorite, the daughters of Zelophehad. He was the son of Hefner that stretches all the way back to the clan of Manasseh. One of Hefner's sons, Zelophehad, had no sons. Back then, that was a problem. The story here is where Zelophehad's daughters petition Moses, actually confront Moses, when the land is being distributed to the tribes of Israel, that they want a piece of the pie. The story is highlighted very often as proof of how progressive the Jews are were of that day. This is a win for ladies' rights. Do you agree? Yes. Amen. Listen to that. There we go. <laughs> And the rest of you are going, eh, where's he going? Okay, well, 
Maybe this is the portrayal of the first feminist win. But what if I said that maybe that wasn't the main reason for the petition, or at least not the main selling point of the petition? This is fun for me. I like this part. Okay, so anyway, Moses isn't crazy. He's not suicidal. So in an insightful effort of self-preservation, when he is confronted by the daughters, he says, doesn't argue with them. I've been confronted, right? Publicly. I'm going to ask God. And that's what he does. I'm going to go ask God direction. Now, I think that Moses actually, like I said, I don't want to take away Moses' humanity back then. I think Moses probably already thought he knew the answer. He knew the land was being divided up. He knew it was being divided up by clans. He knew that there was one that didn't have any sons. If he was conflicted with that point, he would have gone to God. I can't say he would have. He may have gone to God and asked earlier on, hey, what about these guys? But he didn't. So, I'm guessing that Moses probably thought maybe this will slide right by and nobody will notice. But they did. He got confronted by the question. And there's no indication that these ladies were wallflowers. They put him in the hot seat, and they didn't do it privately. At least there's no indication that they went and talked to him privately first. Now, I'll tell you, if I was in that position, because I think about those things, what would I have done? And yeah, I think I'm going to go ask God is a pretty wise response. It sort of puts a period and an exclamation mark on what the answer is going to be, what I already think the answer is going to be. But this brings out one of the proofs, a little bit of a side note, that I think in the Bible that Moses actually does talk face-to-face. Some people question that with God. Because if he didn't, he would have just gone in the back had a glass of water, come back out and said, nope, no can do. But he didn't. The daughters and everybody else expected him to talk to God. They trusted him to, so that he would get the correct answer. And he comes back with probably what was an unexpected answer. Now, I know I'm going rogue here a little bit, but like I said, I don't like to remove the humanity of people. Imagine Moses saying something like this. God, I know the rules of inheritance, but Zelophehad's daughters are causing a ruckus. At the entrance of the tent and meeting, in front of everyone, they want their father's inheritance, and they're saying it's because, hey, he wasn't in the company of Korah. And in 27.7, the Lord says to Moses, probably something that Moses would have found a little bit astounding. <laughs> That's probably appropriate right there. 27.7, he says something that they probably Moses found astounding. God says to him in 27.7, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. And in fact, continue laying out the rules of inheritances that now include daughters in the absence of a son. So it was, in fact, a change for the daughters of Israel. It was, in fact, a change in the power that women had. The issue was addressed by removing gender as a challenge to a rightful legacy. It wasn't about gender, it was about legacy, but it is a part of gender. It removed it as a problem for legacy. 
So look at how the question was asked. It wasn't, how come I don't get any land? It was, how come our tribe will be lost, will lose its legacy? A legacy to be realized, to be apportioned to others, just because our father's Y chromosome didn't make it past go. And they had a point. Why should Zelophehad's contribution to his tribe's legacy, clan's legacy, the overall clan's legacy, be lost? Now, I'm saying I think the main point was legacy. But I talk about all these things with my wife before I come and bring these messages. And she had a slightly different cut on it. She thinks the ladies were being more pragmatic. Hey, how am I going to live? Who's going to marry me if I don't have anything to offer? Remember, you've got to go back to that historical time. So like I said, my wife thinks that maybe the ladies were being a little bit more pragmatic. But I'm not going to stick my neck out that far because that's just not the way it's presented in Scripture. They said it was for their father's tribe and legacy. So I'm going to go with that. Now, they asked in 27.4, again, I think this is the proof it was for legacy. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he has no son? Give us a possession. And I think that Moses, Zelophehad's brothers, took that at face value. It's how Moses presented the question to God. It's how he received God's answer. And it's how everybody else understood it. And no one seems to have questioned it. And how do I know this? Well, it's not in this week's readings, but in Numbers 36, later on, the brothers acknowledge God's direction as relayed through Moses, that Zelophehad's portion or inheritance goes to the daughters. They question as to what will happen if the daughters remarry. So they've accepted the fact, but they want to know what's going to happen. And I'm not saying this because I want to get into it because I actually don't want to get into it because uh, the clan's inheritance would be diminished if they get married and then it goes off. If they marry outside the clan, then, of course, it goes as an inheritance now to whoever they marry into. So we almost end up back at square one. So there is an easy fix, and this is the reason I don't want to get into it, but the answer is marry a cousin. <laughs> hey, it's in the Bible. I'm just telling you. It says... And I don't want to go down that seemingly con- convoluted rabbit trail. But that's how they address the issue. The legacy is what's more important. The legacy is what we're talking about here. So all these things that I've talked about, all these things should bring us to the main driving point that I'm dealing with today, and that's legacy. And what does that mean? And it has many different levels. The days of observance, so we know and are reminded of who we belong to. We know who our shepherd is, and we spread that legacy of peace and salvation. Finkas, who gains God's favor through violence, but is rewarded. He and his family are given a covenant of peace, which will be their legacy to pass on. Moses' legacy, not limited to land or even a personal separate covenant. His legacy is the Torah, the word of God, the establishment of Israel and the Jewish nation. The birthplace of salvation comes from this line. And the daughters of Zelophehad to realize the promise of their clan's part. The apportioned peace that had been promised to them of the promised land to faithfully, as because they faithfully, faithfully remained God's people. And that brings us to the point to ponder in our own legacy. What have we received? 
inherited, if you will, to pass on. Through Yeshua's sacrifice, we are claiming, or the desire is, to be part of a great legacy. And that is the reconciliation of the creator to the creation. Each legacy we studied reaches down through time to us, and they are relevant today. We accept the special place of the state of Israel. The days of observance remind us and guide us to ever get closer to God in fulfillment of the most important commandment, to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. The covenant of peace and salvation that we share is part through how we address the unfairness of the wickedness in the world by turning the other cheek by living God's moral imperatives in a world that seems, at least, to be ever more at odds with them. Be fair to others, and here is the message. Be fair to others because you are fair. God made you to be so. Be kind to others because you are kind. God made you to be so. Be honest with others because you are honest. God made you to be so. To love your neighbor as yourself because that is God's light shining through you. God made you to be so in fulfillment of the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor. This is your legacy that you have received and the legacy, depending on what you do with it, that you will pass on to your neighbor, your family, your descendants. So the question for you is, how will you be remembered? What will be your legacy? This week portion, I think, stamps the importance through example in history. So take a moment today, this week, during the days of observance over the year that we talked about, what is your legacy going to be? And you are all building one. And for those who are very young, and I don't know if we have a whole lot of young people in here right now. That didn't come out right. But if I mean like less than teenagers. Um, you're building your legacy now. Although we rarely think, I didn't think about it at that age, but you are. We live in a challenging time in which the legacy we have received is not easy or comfortable to pass on. I can't tell you. I really can't tell you how to turn the other cheek in this society how to turn the other cheek in your life. That you need to understand from God's word as you study it and as we go through the scriptures, and we always do, like to engross ourselves in Torah. That's why we do it. But I can tell you it's important. It is critical to think about. It is part of your life, and it will be your legacy. So I hope that made some sense and maybe talk to somebody. Um, thought it was an interesting study. I always enjoy this stuff. But uh, it's now time to end with the ironic benediction. And as uh, Brian said, I hope you all join us over on the other side. If you have any questions, I don't know if what I said was a little bit confusing or a little bit lost there, please ask me. Um, but I hope to see you over there on the other side. Many of you may notice, you can all stand up. We're going to close with Aaron's blessing. Many of you notice that I come up and stand with a rabbi. That's not because I'm special. It's because I don't think the rabbi should be up here. Oh, wait a second. My wife showed up. I was going to ask for a volunteer. You're going to get voluntold. 
Come on up. <laughs> no, don't try to pawn it off on anybody else. Come on. <laughs> you see that on the way up? She's going, hey, you want to do it? You want to do it? Hey, dear. Just made it. <laughs> <laughs> now, our daughter came and visited, and so uh, I didn't know it was going to work out that way, and she's leaving to go up to D.C., and so... We needed to send her off, and I had to come here. Well, I, had, I wanted to come here and give the message. So, okay, we're all together. As you know, I like to start with the English. And uh, at my wife's advice, I will tone it down a little bit. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant each and every one of you his peace. Ivarechaka Adonai Vaishmarecha Yair Adonai Panavalacha Viachunecha Adonai, Adonai, Penavalecha, Vyasem Lacha, Yalom. God bless you and build your legacy.